Hello, and welcome to the What Type Ones Eat podcast. I'm Daria. I'm Andrew. And we're delighted that you have decided to join us for season two. In this series, we will be speaking to professionals from the diabetic industry, researchers, doctors, dietitians, and people in the public eye. The aim of this podcast is to equip you with strategies based on their research and experience and to help you make the best choices for you to live life to the full with your diabetes. Before we start, we just want to remind you that nothing on this podcast is intended as medical or nutritional advice, and you should always consult your diabetes team before you make any changes to your management. We are kicking off this series with an amazing guest, Dr. Matthew Campbell, who is a researcher in type 1 diabetes and he looks at self-management in type 1. This is a great interview and we cannot wait for you to hear it. So let's hop into it. Um, so my name is Matthew Campbell. I'm a research scientist. I'm currently at the University of Sunderland and I've got interests in type 1 diabetes. Um, specifically to do with the self-management of type one um, with aspects of general lifestyle. So diet, physical activity, exercise. Um, I'm a physiologist, a uh, nutritionist. Um, that's, that's, my, that's my background. Um, but yeah, I found, a, I found a passion in type one diabetes. Yeah, because I see seeing you have quite a lot of qualifications. Was your BSc in nutrition? So my, my, my BSc was in um, exercise physiology. Okay. Um, I was unfortunate enough to go straight into a PhD, which um, I guess these days is quite unusual. Um, I was really fortunate in, in that where I did my degree, um, which is in Newcastle in the UK. Um, one, of my, one of my lecturers, uh, his research background was in type 1 diabetes. And it's not really something that you find uh, being a large part of the curriculum in a lot of degrees. You know, if you do nutrition, if you do exercise, if you do, even if you do medicine, it's, it's something which is covered, but it's not something which you have the opportunity to focus quite heavily in on. Um, and I've always been interested in metabolism. So how the body, what physiological processes in the body uh, control how we are able to process food and nutrients and derive energy from them. Um, and it's, it, it starts to get really interesting when you look at certain systems that have um, dysfunctions, dysfunctions of metabolism um, and look at certain alterations. Um, and type 1 diabetes is a, is a fantastic example of that. It's a really interesting topic to study but at the same time, there's obviously a lot of people who also need help with managing their type 1 diabetes and understanding how the body is able to manage and process energy is really fundamental to understanding how you can improve the self-management of diabetes. Yeah, because I was going to say, um, I specifically went to do an MSc back at Leeds so that I could do a P um, my master's research as part of like under your um, sort of supervision. And then I found out that you left and I was so disappointed. <laughs> I was just beyond annoyed. But it is very true that there are very few and far between researchers that actually do anything in type one and um, sort of metabolism disorders like this. Um, and can you get into a little bit more detail as to why that is? 
It's very difficult. I mean, obviously, um, diabetes and obesity, they're always kind of grabbing the headlines today. And I think one of the major frustrations, not just for me, and you know, I should stop, stop by saying straight away that I'm not someone who lives with type 1 diabetes. Um, I am active within the research world, but I don't, I don't live with it. Um, but I do really appreciate the frustrations of, of people living with type 1, because whenever you seem to hear diabetes in the headlines, it's just labeled as diabetes. And they really struggle, but certainly mainstream media, really struggle to differentiate between type 2 and type 1. And although there are some shared characteristics, they are very distinct, different diseases. Um, obviously, there's, there's fewer people living with type 1 diabetes. Um, so I think that's probably the most logical reason as, as to why it can appear to be understudied. Um, but I think it's really how that research is, is it's not so much that there, that there isn't really research going on. There's actually a huge amount of really interesting research which is, which is happening. But unfortunately, it seems to be behind closed doors because it doesn't really seem to get pushed by the media. For, for various reasons. We've, we've got some very good um, organizations and charities within the UK. Diabetes UK and, and JDRF, they're very, very good at, at promoting not just activities which are applicable specifically for people with type one, but also the research behind it. Um, but yeah, it's certainly very difficult to gain traction. Yeah, that definitely is what I think both myself and Andrew as type 1 diabetics found that there is plenty of stuff for type 2s on type 2 diabetes and especially in the research world um, and not much in type 1. Um, could you tell me why you got interested in type 1 diabetes? Because, well, you're obviously not a type 1 diabetic yourself and to my knowledge, none of your close family proximity is either. So why was that? No, so um, usually when um, people ask me that question, they expect me to have some, you know, some kind of, you know, really interesting story um, and some close family or friend link to where the condition. And actually, it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, before I went to university, you know, I was one of the kind of general public that didn't really understand that much about type one diabetes. Um, I was also always heavily involved in in, in sport and exercise, um, and I competed in a few different sports at a fairly high level. Um, and there was always the odd person who, who seemed to have a type one diabetes, but it was never really something that kind of grabbed my attention at that stage. Um, probably because I think if you're engaging in exercise at such a high level, you, you do tend to just kind of get on with it and you seem to be managing it very well, whether that is the case or not. Um, but you certainly seem to be managing it quite well. It wasn't until I, I started my degree um, and it, I had that level of exposure um, to understanding a little bit more you know, around what diabetes is, um, its etiology and its pathophysiology. And obviously there was a, an underlying scientific interest there, but there was an opportunity to undertake a PhD. And I'd, I'd had some exposure to, to conducting some research studies with people with type 1 diabetes. And one of the really novel things, uh, which I'm sure you, you'll probably understand, um, having done your undergrad and, and master's, was that people with, with type 1 diabetes, generally, they're very enthusiastic about research. They're very enthusiastic about learning more about their own condition and how to improve it. And actually, if you're a researcher, that's quite strange. Um, it's usually very difficult to recruit people to a research study, even if you live with a long-term health condition. 
Um, there's lots of barriers surrounding that. Whereas I think there's, and of course it's, it's not necessarily the same for everybody, but there's a large type one diabetes community who are really engaged and actually really want to try and learn as much as they can and, and improve their own diabetes. So it was actually that which really got me interested in it. I think there was obviously an underlying scientific interest, but it's something which I thought actually these are, these are individuals who, who are really trying their best and just need a bit of help. Um, and I, it was probably something which I thought this is probably an area that I think I could probably get quite a lot from um, intrinsically. Um, you know, you, you, you get to see that really tangible reward almost instantaneously. You know, even if someone in the research study doesn't necessarily see the results straight away from that trial, just being part of a research project, they've already been able to learn more about their condition and, and little hints and tips and, and how they might be able to improve their, their own self-management. Yeah, I remember you promoting uh, joining your um, sort of uh, research area uh, saying to me uh, back in my undergrad that it's a really good area because people are really engaged and really want to be engaged, which is really cool. So the two areas that really always caught my attention in your research are um, the management of high fat and high carb meals and obviously exercise. So do you want to, would you like to start with the high fat or the yeah, exercise? Um, what was, why, what made you start that area? Because obviously, again, not a lot of clinicians practice telling people that you need to actually do split doses for um, high fat meals. And then it's not a very known thing, so to speak, even in the type one diabetes community. Um, how did you get to that? Well, interestingly, um, the vast majority of our research uh, has either been influenced or informed by people living with type one diabetes. And I think that's, again, one of the really nice things about the work that we do. Um, I think generally there can be a, a kind of perception among the general public that scientists just kind of go off and do what they think is interesting. Um, and it doesn't always necessarily have that translational link back to the people who are living with a particular condition. Um, whereas a lot of our work that we do, we actually go out and we ask people what they struggle with. You know, what do you want to know more about? What would actually help you manage your condition better? We speak to people living with the condition. We speak to the people who, we also speak to their families, but we also speak to clinicians and nurses and other diabetes specialists who see the problems on the front line. I'm not a clinician myself. I'm a, I'm a researcher. So I'm kind of, I'm stuck behind a university wall and I don't necessarily, although I do go into clinic and I do speak to patients frequently, I don't often get to see the daily clinical challenges that people have to live with and that the clinicians have to, have to try and manage. So we have a very heavy um, kind of patient public involvement focus uh, within our group where you know, we will host public engagement nights. And half of that is to, to try and um, inform people about the work that we are doing. But then also quite sneakily, the other half is to try and find out what new research we should be doing and what people actually want to hear about. The high fats um, kind of, insulin dosing strategy work that, well, that, that we've done is a really good example of that. So as you said, this is not really something that was on the radar. It's still not really on the radar to a large extent, but it is starting to kind of filter through now. 
Um, as you will know, Matthew. Yeah, sorry. sorry can, could I just take you back to your point before? And the reason I wanted to ask was, I think this may lead into the high fat, which is what, obviously both Daria and I live with type one. We have our, our own individual issues and problems and things that we have to deal with. Have you found in your, in your times that you've spent with type ones and with clinicians, have you found that there's, there's a, a top three or a top five problems that people with type one suffer with? And does that, and, and is that where you're spending your time trying to help them with? So it's a bit of a loaded question because I'm sure high fat is one of those things. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that you'll come up with two, perhaps a couple of others that sure. people are struggling with. So I would say there's probably three main areas that um, I would say are the most common kind of complaints that I often hear. One is um, trying to eat everyday foods and just going off carbohydrate counting, you know, is that effective and is it not? And also the variability surrounding that. So the variability within an individual. So for example, you know, if you go and have fish and chips on a Friday, then, you know, you might have a, a relatively normal glucose response, or you might, you know, you might, you might have a certain strategy that you might use um, in, order, in order to do that. If you then go and have it on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, why is that response slightly different? Or in worst case, very different. So, it's what is happening with everyday meals, um, you know, the things which people really like to eat and eat very regularly, but um, either struggle with regularly, or actually there seems to be some variability around, around that. I would say there's, there's also variability between different people, so not just within the same person. So actually what works for one person really doesn't work for somebody else. Um, I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners will be familiar with the glycemic index in terms of having fast releasing sugars and then also slow releasing um, kind of starchy carbohydrates. Um, I mean, we actually did a, a research study which whereby we, we took 100 people um, with type 1 diabetes and we gave them different foods and we matched them um, nutritionally so that they were identical. And the only thing which they differed by really was glycemic index. So if you looked on the back of a pack, on, on the back of a pack, uh, packet, you would see that the nutritional composition is, is identical between these two foods. Of course, um, the GI is completely different on them, and GI is not often presented on nutritional information on a packet, so that's Never. not very helpful. Never. So that's not very helpful for you guys. Um, and as you would expect, the vast majority of people with a high GI meal, you know, those fast um, releasing sugars, they get quite a big spike in glucose compared to the, the more kind of slow-releasing starchy foods. So when you look at the data, on average, that's what you tend to see. But actually, when you look at individuals, some people have completely opposite results. So I suppose this kind of broad blanket brush approach of just saying, well, actually, just stick with your slow, starchy, you know, your, your slowly digested starchy carbohydrates for everybody. I mean, apart from the fact that, it, you know, they don't necessarily, they're not always very appetizing, you know, what I kind of call the kind of beige cardboard food. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really work for everybody. So there's certainly variation there. And then I suppose the third area, um, moving slightly off the diet, but very much heavily interconnected, is around exercise and physical activity. And, and as, a, as a, someone who's interested in exercise and as an exercise physiologist, I'm always someone who tries, who tries to promote exercise um, 
and a lot of my work is, is, is being in, has been around trying to, to, to devise important self-management strategies to help people exercise safely. But of course, when we then take that back to the, to the general population, the people with type one, they say, well, that's, that's great. You know, I can now go out and run a 5K, but I still have a hypo every time I walk the dog or I do the ironing or I wash the car or I play with my kids. So I think that's one of the biggest complaints, you know, I mean, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about some strategies to help people exercise safely, but realistically, people are not going to have a big carbohydrate meal 60 minutes before, reduce their insulin dose by 75% if they're just going to wash the car. And I think it's, it's that lack of spontaneity, you know, the huge amount of planning that needs to go into managing your diabetes on, on, on a day by day basis. And, you know, simply just running to catch the bus, um, you know, on a morning or, running out um running out of the office to grab some lunch that's one of the the biggest challenges that that i think people with type one tend to come to me with and we don't really have all of the answers at the moment for that but we do have some new work which should hopefully try and should hopefully try and find some answers can i just hop back to your second point um about the gi foods i don't know if you're familiar with the daphne course but they actually do teach a quite helpful tip as to look at the actual ingredients and quite often they have percentages of what's included in there and that tip actually helped me quite a lot um back in the days um but still it's not a very good way to go for your dosing especially like you can do different things on pumps as you might well know you might extend your bolus you might split your bolus quite easily without having to fuss around with pens um, but on pens, it does become a little bit more difficult. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just struggling to get an insulin, an insulin pump and I just can't stop complaining about it, but, um, that's a whole yeah. issue. Yeah. I think it is very difficult. I mean, obviously if you're on an insulin pump and I'm, I'm not here to, to uh, promote pumps at all, but it does offer a much more flexible method of insulin delivery. Um, but the vast majority of people are treated using insulin pens, which means that the vast majority of people are struggling to manage their diabetes, specifically around meal times. One small tip, which you can use, and you know, as, as you say, it's probably not that accurate, but it's just to look at the fiber content. Uh, anything which is high in fiber, it's going to delay what we call gastric emptying. So um, the speed at which food is emptied from the stomach uh, then goes through the digestive system, and, and then the nutrients then appear within the circulation. Fiber slows that. Anything which, which will slow the transit of food through the body will, will, will delay the release of, of, of sugar, will delay the release of glucose into the circulation. So fiber is very good for that. Fat is also very good for that as well. Um, and protein can also help. I was going to ask, is there a specific amount of, again, fiber, fat, and protein that you need, like, you know, like a threshold. So basically if you go over, you need to split bolus. If you don't go over, you need to do a regular bolus or is that individual for everyone? What have you so, found? So I, I, I guess this is probably gonna be the first but not the last time I will say this, is that it's completely individual, which I know is the most frustrating thing to say to anybody living with type one diabetes because what they want is just a rough guide of, can I just go away and, and do this and then play with it? Um, if you can get, I mean, for example, if you look on the back of on the back of a packet, um, I would say if if you if you have a ratio between fiber and carbohydrate of one to four, so um, that is that is probably generally quite good. Um, it'll give you a bit of an indication in terms of that's going to be digested at a slightly slower rate. Um, 
if the ratio is a little bit further apart, you know, so if you're on a kind of a one to 10 ratio, then you know that there's probably not going to be that much fiber in there and there's probably going to be quite a lot of sugar. Um, so try and look at the fiber, the fiber content and it's and, it, and the proportion of the fiber in relation to the carbohydrate. And that'll give you a, a fairly good idea. Yeah, and I just wanted to throw in here that the American labels are very different from English labels. So for anyone listening who is in America, um, subtract, oh, how do you do it? You subtract the fiber from the carbs, don't you? Yeah, okay. That's right, yeah. Um, so let's get back to the high fat meals. Um, what is your research in? Tell us a little bit about just general background of what you do in sure. high fat meals. Well, as I was saying, um, this this particular area of research this was really informed by people living with 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 type one um we were involved in quite a big research project with team nova nordisk um who was a, a kind of professional cycling team with type one diabetes um and doing, there, don't you who's part of it I, I remember well, yeah i've got a i've got a couple of friends who 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 are in the cycling team um, and we were involved in this, this big research project with a number of other organizations, um, Dexcom and Orange and various, various other ones. Um, and the whole point of the research project really was to try and characterize um, the kind of physiological demands of, of um, a multi-day endurance cycling event. So we had guys who were cycling from Brussels to Barcelona, um, which is pretty, pretty Very phenomenal. casual thing to do. Very casual yeah yeah of course um i mean it's a it was a, it was a pretty phenomenal undertaking it was to try and replicate what would be um almost like a like a kind of tour de france or a, a, a giro um so really at the kind of the higher levels of exercise participation but one of the things which which i noticed i mean we we, we stopped overnight in barcelona and uh, we went out for some food um so we were sitting around having dinner and one of the guys with type one, uh, he was treated using pens. He calculated his insulin dose using kind of traditional carbohydrate counting methods. Nothing went towards, nobody really took much notice and kind of got on out with our meals. Then about two and a half hours to three hours later, he then took a, another small dose. So literally a couple of units and he didn't even check his blood glucose levels. And obviously that's not something which, which I would recommend. You know, if you're gonna take additional units, always check your blood sugar levels to make sure um, you know, you're kind of confident with, with, with what they're doing, the level and obviously the direction. But I thought that was particularly curious because it seemed to be something that he just did commonly. Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a typical correction dose. Um, you know, it wasn't that he was having symptoms of, of hyperglycemia. You know, he wasn't having a really big high. Um, so, I, you know, we, we, we basically asked him, we said, you know, what you're doing with that and why and he said oh well it's to account for the amount of fat in the meal you know because if you have a meal with a high amount of fat then actually my sugars tend to go quite high a number of hours afterwards they tend to peak at about two and a half three hours and you know they rise up to about six or seven hours and I said, all oh, right that's quite interesting and of course physiologically that makes complete sense but then when you go back to the guidance or if you go back to your, your clinician or your diabetes specialist nurse it's not something which is commonly promoted in clinic if you do, a few clinicians are aware of it but it's not it certainly wasn't part of, of, of common clinical guidance or, or the kind of education that people are receiving. So we thought, well, let's go back to the literature. Let's see you know, what has been done in this area and to see whether there is actually any scientific evidence to support this. And there was very, very little. Um, there was one study which didn't really 
answer the research question that we were interested in. And they had just focused on people with uh, pumps. Um, so we ran a research project um, with um, people using pens and we gave them two different types of food. So we either give them a, a meal with negligible fat content, basically nothing in it. So a low fat meal, or we give them a high fat meal, about 50 grams of fat. And that's, it's, it's a large amount of fat, but it's fairly representative to if you had a lasagna or a curry or, a, you know, so kind of commonly consumed foods. And with the high fat meal, we, we give them that several times and we ask them to change their kind of insulin dosing strategy. So we ask them to either um, administer their units just based on the carbohydrate counting method with the meal. And if you do that, well, actually, it, you're pretty much fine for the first couple of hours. And then after about three or four hours, you get this late rise in glucose. If you just administer more insulin with the meal, then actually, again, you're, you're kind of OK for the first hour or so. But you do increase the risk of going low later on. So that's not very safe. Whereas if you just split your dose, so you administer the extra insulin requirements for the fat in the meal, but you administer about two and a half to three hours afterwards, then actually you can completely negate um, that rise in, in postprandial glucose. And what's um, dangerous about just going off carbs, as you say, is that you actually end up low right after the meal, and then you keep treating and treating and treating, and then you end up even higher if, as if like you wouldn't compared to like not treating basically absolutely yeah. and i think one of the i mean just double high absolutely and i think i mean what what really emphasizes that if you go back to the research paper and you actually look at the data which is presented in the figures because actually it could be quite misleading and you know people will often say oh well actually what, what would you administer you know would you, would you just administer a couple of units or, or is it even worth doing that and i think one of the, one of the problems which you have to really try and find out the extra information which is contained within the paper, not just the kind of headline news. But it's that, for example, when we just increase the dose um, at baselines, when we just increase the dose with, with the actual meal and people went low, not only did they go low, but we had to overfeed them with carbohydrate for about six hours. So not only were they having an increased risk of going low, but we had to continuously overfeed with, with carbohydrate. And obviously if you're doing that on a regular basis, not only is it not good for your your general blood sugar control, but it's, it's also not going to be very good for your weight management. And it's also very difficult to get corrections right. Um, so um, usually what, what we would see is that, you know, people would, would, um, they would administer, administer a larger dose with the meal. They would then go low. They would then have some carbohydrate that might not work. So they then overcompensate and have even more carbohydrate. That's probably slightly too much. So then they administer some extra units of insulin. The insulin, which they had, the, the larger dose of insulin, which they administered previously, that's probably still fairly high. There's probably still fairly high levels within the system. So then they go low again. So then they have to overcorrect. And you have this kind of sawtooth, this yo-yo pan throughout, throughout the day. So not only does it increase your risk of going low, you end up eating more carbohydrate, but you also result in quite a large degree of glycemic variability, which we also know is very bad for you know, complication risks and general diabetes management. So yeah, the take home basically is, is always check your blood sugars um, after a meal, but at the same time, you can also split your dose. Um, and if you're going to do that, then even just an extra couple of units of of insulin can help normalize some of those some of those sugar levels after a high fat meal. 
it's interesting, isn't it, that correction doses can change depending on the amount of fat that is in the food that you're actually eating. And you, it's so difficult to test for that. It's, it's not impossible, let's be honest. You, you, what you've explained is something that we all, all have to go through depending on the, uh, the makeup of the food that we're eating at the time. And you can't always justify what's happening. And, and it's, it, you do the very best you can, obviously, but that roller coaster kind of ride that you, that you explained, I'm sure everyone that's type one has been through that on numerous Absolutely. occasions. Absolutely, yeah. Every single person that I've spoken to you know, struggles with mealtime glucose management. Uh, what happens on one day doesn't necessarily happen on another day. And that's because there's so many factors that influence that, you know, whether you've been physically active, what your sleep is like, whether there's any hormonal imbalances. Um, so there's many different factors that you have to try and add in. And there's quite a lot of work going into developing algorithms, you know, where you can, you can put in your, your, your kind of individual nutrients. You can put in, you know, how long you've slept for, whether you think it was a good sleep or it was a deep sleep, whether you've done physical activity, if you have, was it high intensity, low intensity, all of these different factors. And at the moment, we're not really there with, you know, an algorithm where you can just plug in what you're doing and what you've um, and what you've ate and it won't just give you well actually you need so many units at this time um the artificial pancreas is probably a closer step to to having you know some some degree of good control around general lifestyle but these algorithms don't really tend to work in the present form the best rule is just see what works for you and try and tinker with it which i know is not really great advice it's not necessarily what everybody wants to hear but that's 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 really what we have to work with at the moment. Yeah, um, I was going to just ask, is it similar with fiber meals? So can they also have this sort of like six or maybe less hour delays um, in how fast your glucose rises, obviously? So would it be fair to say that you can use a similar strategy for high fiber, high fiber meals as you can for high fat? So you, you might certainly want to split your dose. What fiber does is it delays the transport of food through, through, through the digestive tract. So the rate at which nutrients, including sugar, is being absorbed into the circulation is being delayed. And fat does that as well. The difference between fat and fiber, however, in terms of blood sugar management, is that fat actually promotes glucose output from the liver. Um, so not only will it delay uh, the release of glucose into the circulation, but actually over time, it will also help to promote glucose release, which is stored in the body. And that will also contribute to elevated glucose levels. So fiber is not necessarily doing that. It's really just delaying glucose. So rather than having one big heavy dose at the, you know, at the start of a meal, if you know it's gonna be slowly digested over a long period of time, you could have the same amount of insulin, but potentially split it. Um, whereas if you're having a large amount of fat, not only would you want to split that because uh, potentially it's, it's delaying the transit of the nutrients, but also there might actually be extra insulin requirements. The extra insulin requirements probably are not going to be there for just for fiber. That's very interesting because I've never thought about that, actually. Um, I was also going to ask you in terms of... Um, when to administer your insulin. Of course, you can do split boluses. That's great. However, I have not seen anywhere in the research anything about pre-bolusing. Are you familiar with the concept and why is it not in the papers? So I, I am familiar with the, the concept. Um, 
Why it's not in the research environment is because there's very little evidence to support it. But just because there's a lack of evidence doesn't necessarily you know, mean that it doesn't necessarily work. It just means that it hasn't necessarily been tried and tested. I think there's lots of factors that this depends on. So it's the type of insulin that you're on. If you're on a very rapid acting insulin or an ultra, an ultra uh, acting insulin, which are, which, are, which, which are now available, then actually that, that probably kind of negates um, some, of the, some, of the, some of the rationale for kind of having quite a heavy preload. If you're on some of the slower acting mealtime insulins, then you want to try and get that into your circulation a little bit earlier. One of the other reasons why it's not often promoted, um, and it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to handle this at home, but for example, if you imagine going to a restaurant and you kind of think, right, well, I'm, I'm going to go for a meal, I'm going to have my dinner about, you know, in about 30 minutes time, you administer your insulin. Uh, and then if something happens, if there's a delay or, you know, you, you, you then don't eat for, for an hour, then you've then got a bit of a problem because you've, you know, you've got enough insulin in your circulation to handle quite a large amount of food but then the food hasn't arrived yet. Um, so that's probably one of the reasons. Um, it doesn't really offer maybe a huge amount of flexibility. Um, but if you know that you are going to eat and you know what you're going to eat and how you're likely to behave in response to that, then it's probably quite a good strategy. But it's again, it's something which you should talk to your clinician about and it's something which you need to kind of give a little bit of trial and error with. Yeah, clinicians are very um, sort of, they don't want to talk about it and they say no we don't advise pre-bolusing more than 15 minutes um however um the ultra fast acting insulin what you're talking about is fiasp isn't it um or there's, there's an analog to the market yeah. i use it and i still need to pre-bolus over 40 minutes so yeah, yeah. Um, one one, one of the things which again yeah, and, and I, I think one, one of the things which, which I would say is that, you know, when sometimes when, when, when you look at the research, it's very easy to kind of grab a headline from it. Um, however, when you look at the finer details, specifically who participates in this research, you know, they tend to be of all a very similar makeup. So relatively young, tend to be male, um, tend to have no or very minor complications, generally fit and healthy. Uh, and that's not representative to the you know, vast majority of people living with, with type one. Um, they also tend to, you know, be kind of normal weight, so might not necessarily have insulin resistance, which can influence insulin requirements. So trying to extrapolate some of these findings to the wider population of people with type 1, the people who actually really struggle with the diabetes isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do. So not only is there a lack of research in this area, but also the research may not necessarily be directly applicable to the people who really need it the most. Yeah. So Matthew, um, you mentioned, sorry, I, I was going to say, Matthew, you mentioned the word insulin resistance there, which is, which is Dario and I often talk about insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance. And obviously if you're, if you're also looking into um, to the high fat foods, what, what are you finding uh, is, is the, the feedback from people that, that you're dealing with and the research that you're, you're, you're building in relation to insulin resistance and trying to stop some of that? Is it all down to the food or is it, is it again, down to the exercise and other areas as well? There you go. So I guess, um, I mean, this is actually an area of immediate research for us. So um, I think when, when you look in clinic, there, is, there isn't really that much of a fine line between people with type one and type two now. Um, 
I think uh, there are two separate diseases and uh, they're managed very differently. They do have some similar characteristics, but actually there's a large proportion of people with type one who also demonstrate characteristics of type two. One of the problems is that, and we call this having double diabetes, where you, you have a diagnosis, a pre-existing diagnosis of type one diabetes, um, but you also may be overweight, have insulin resistance, um, your, um, your blood lipids, so um, your kind of cholesterol might not necessarily be within the right range. You might have high, high blood pressure. Um, and the, the problem is, is, is that you're never really diagnosed with having type 2 because you've already been diagnosed with having type 1 diabetes. So you've already got a diabetes diagnosis. The proportion of people with type 1 who are also living with type 2 diabetes or features of type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance specifically. And it's very, very high. You know, it's kind of 40, 50, 60% of people with type 1 who we typically see in clinic. Um, and this is something which it's, it's a very important characteristic of their diabetes, which isn't necessarily being treated. It's very difficult for clinicians to treat people with type 1 who also display insulin resistance be, simply because there's, there's, there's no clinical guidelines um, for it. So this is a really big feature of our work at the moment to try and devise strategies to help to, to undo some insulin resistance for people with type one. Main things are around diet. So some of the, some of the kind of insulin dosing strategies which we've talked about previously can help, but the major thing is weight loss um, and strategies which, which promote weight loss. And that's very difficult because if you're trying to lose weight, I mean, a lot of people with type one will often tell me that they find it very difficult to maintain weight. They find it very easy to put on weight. And that makes complete sense because insulin, it's an anabolic hormone. What it likes to do is to store fuels. And if you store fuels in excess, then you store that as fat. So a lot of people with type one often struggle with weight, they struggle with body composition, and they often struggle with exercise. And exercise really is the golden ticket. There are some pharmacological therapies which you can do. So, you know, things like SGLT2 inhibitors, which help you know, promote glucose or ex excessive glucose release from uh, the kidneys. Um, so you essentially just excrete extra sugar. Um, there's also metformin, which is often used as uh, an adjunct therapy in type 2 diabetes to help, uh, to help improve um, insulin sensitivity. But the most effective strategy is really exercise. If you exercise regularly, if you're physically active, it's way more effective. All of the big studies show that exercise is as if not more effective than pharmacological therapy. The problem that you have is that a lot of people with type one really struggle to manage blood sugars around exercise. So you have that, this kind of really fine balancing act between trying to aggressively lower weight um, whilst trying to avoid hypoglycemia, uh, hypoglycemia, and those really dangerous kind of glucose fluctuations. Yeah, because um, you also get, when you lose weight, you actually become more insulin sensitive, which then can lead to more hypos if you don't know to adjust for it in time. And that will sort of make you gain weight right back again. Um, so what strategies do you actually advise to kind of counteract that? Well, not advise, but what have you found works to counteract yeah. that? Absolutely. And I mean, I suppose it's also worth saying that exercise is good for lots of reasons. So not just for improving insulin sensitivity, it's good for your heart health. It's good for the general, the general vasculature, which, you know, which is the really important for avoiding diabetes complications. Um, you can also change the type of exercise. So for example, you know, we, um, you can improve whole body insulin 
uh, resistance or improve whole body insulin sensitivity. But different types of exercise do it in different ways. So you can improve uh, insulin sensitivity in the muscle, um, and that's you know largely very good uh, through exercise. However, if you're very overweight and you've got a high level of insulin resistance, simply exercising probably isn't going to just do it alone. One, because it's very difficult to burn high amounts of calories just using exercise. You really do need a dietary intervention, um, a calorie restrictive dietary intervention on top. And also because it's very difficult to shift insulin resistance from the liver. And that's really important because if you imagine taking a kind of background dose, your background dose is really there to suppress excessive glucose release from the liver, spe specifically in between meals and during the night. If you've got a high level of insulin resistance at the liver, then actually your liver is going to be free to kick out glucose into the circulation. So you're going to have high glucose levels in between meals and also during the night. Now, exercise will help that, but it's nowhere near as effective as reducing your calories. So a combination of the two is the most effective. Also, if you're particularly overweight um, and if you want to do everything all, all in one go, exercise and diet, the problem which you have with exercise is that your body doesn't really like you losing weight. It wants you to hang on to those, those fat stores, hang on to those, those extra calories. So it, is, it, you know, it will send your appetite through the roof. We've got a very well-defined, sophisticated appetite response to calorie restriction. As soon as you cut out calories, your appetite will increase. If you try and exercise, your appetite will also increase. So it can be very, very difficult to maintain over the longer run. So if you've got a large amount of weight to lose, stick with the diet first, try and go quite intensive, and then gradually build in some exercise over time. So what I meant by decreasing insulin resistance was the more long-term term effect of exercise. So if you start losing weight, you obviously you're because insulin is an anabolic hormone, it also needs less to maintain the weight, sort of. So you actually need to take in less to either lose weight or even maintain your weight at this point. So how is there any research in that area or is it more in the short term effect? So in terms of research, non-specific to type one diabetes, we've actually got a research project starting fairly recently, um, which, which will be looking to address that exact question. You know, what happens over the long term? What dietary strategies are particularly useful for, for trying to tackle insulin resistance over the long term? One strategy which I think is particularly useful is um, focusing on protein intake. One of the reasons for that is because you don't often have to bolus heavily for it. Um, it's almost like a kind of free calorie. It's, it's not quite, um, but you, it's very difficult for the body to store that as, as kind of excess. Um, it's also really good for starving up appetite as well. So if you just focus on protein intake, then what you'll find is you probably want to eat less um, and you'll probably need less carbohydrate. The less carbohydrate you have, then the less insulin you're going to need to, to provide necessary coverage. I'm not a direct supporter of a low fat diet, but I am a supporter of limiting your fat in terms of its effect on insulin resistance. And Andrew actually follows a fully um, low carb, high fat, uh, the other way, a high fat, okay. low carb diet. Um, so in your research, uh, have you come across um, reducing fat to improve insulin resistance or is it more the low carb that's promoted? Um, I would say neither. Um, so there's two very distinct camps. You're either a kind of low carb keto warrior um, or you're not um, and you go along with carbohydrates. All of the kind of long-term studies, not in people with type 1, 
but you know the same can be applied. All of the long-term studies around weight management and insulin resistance generally say the same thing. You can lose a lot of weight fairly rapidly with a low-carb diet. A lot of that is probably through um, water, through water, through water retention, um, and actually you have to be very low-carb and you have to give it a, a, a very good shot, and it can be very difficult to to stick to. The caveat with that, with a lot of people with type one, is, is that it can increase your risk of, of ketones. Um, so you do need to keep quite quite a big check on that. Over the longer term, and it's all good and well looking at kind of studies that have lasted for three to six months, but actually what we're really interested in, well, what's happening over the long term? So three, six years, for example. Uh, and you know, once you look at studies over five years, generally, it doesn't really matter what the composition of your diet is, whether it's, you know, um, the kind of ratios between carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Um, generally, they all tend to do the same thing if you have the same level of calories um, being reduced. So if you can reduce calories, then you will lose weight and you will probably lose weight as effective as any other diet. The next question is, well, what is the most effective way to, to make sure that you can maintain a lower level of calories? Um, and the most effective way is to starve off the appetite. Um, and if you just want to do that through dietary you know, means alone, then protein is by far the most potent um, macronutrient for starving off appetite. It's also really good for improving muscle mass and bone health. And muscle mass is really important because the more muscle you have, the higher your metabolism, the more energy you're, you're just naturally burning anyway. Um, so in terms of you know, whether high carb or low carb is better, if you're reducing calories, they're probably going to do similar things. In terms of their acute metabolic effects on things like insulin resistance, again, it's probably fairly similar for the vast majority of people. If you're having high amounts of fat, then that's probably going to be detrimental. And if you're having high amounts of very uh, you know, fast-acting, um, fast-releasing sugary foods, that's also going to be very bad. A lot of these studies have looked at, um, a lot of the studies kind of looking at high fat diets as high carb diets have looked at animal models. So unfortunately it's, you know, it's typically the rats, which, which get exposed to these conditions because it's not Poor really thing. ethical. Yeah. I mean, it's not really ethical to kind of put, you know, people, people through that. Um, and they, 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 they don't really tend to be that translatable to what we would typically do anyway so the diets which they are fed with you know it's nobody is just eating 95 percent you know sugar or you know just a you know a really high fat diet um so it's very difficult to kind of translate that across but generally it doesn't really matter so much the split between the macronutrients if you're just focusing on protein and cutting down your calories yeah but Matthew. also what go ahead andrea Sorry, I was going to say, Matthew, uh, obviously reading your bio, you, you are involved in the cardiovascular side as well of diabetes. And it interests me because diabetes, as I understand it, is, is a pandemic. You know, the, the, the numbers are increasing every year. They're increasing both type twos and type ones. But the vast majority of people with diabetes, as I understand it, again, we are already two and a half times more, more likely to have cardiovascular problems. Now, 
my view about this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that this is only getting worse over time. And from all of the information, I've spoken to another cardiologist in in uh, in India called, um, his name is Ahunja Anand. He's a very interesting guy, but he was telling me about people with type one and type two that are in their teenage years that are having stints in their hearts. And because of living for, for a number of years and eating high fat foods. And so my question to you is, I'm, I'm not asking you to, to, to plumb for one way or the other of eating. I've tried both, by the way. I was ketogenic for five years. I've, I'm now low fat. But, the, but, um, but if we have a problem with cardiovascular disease for people that are diabetic, I think that's the long term. That, that's one of those markers that we need to be looking at long term for some of the research that you guys are doing. And it's really interesting because you use the words that I use and, and that Daria uses, which is probably. And we all think that we that we know a bit about it. And we all but we need that we need that data, don't we? And that's where your stuff is going to come in. It's, it's going to be so important the longer the longer and the more information that you generate. We do need the data, and I think there is generally a lack of data just across the piece when it comes to type 1. I think in terms of general dietary recommendations, they've actually been fairly static for the last kind of 50 to 60 years. They haven't really changed. Um, it's, not, it's not so much just focusing on macronutrients, but also the types of carbohydrates, the types of fats. We know that there are specific fats which are actually very good for us. And we know that there's specific fats which are very bad for us, you know. So things like your trans fats, which are largely kind of banned in a lot of in a lot of kind of fast food um, based foods now. I think they've been um, completely banned in the UK, haven't they? Sorry, they've been completely banned in the yes. UK or very heavily taxed. Yeah, absolutely. And things like um, saturated fats, you know, there's specific dietary guidelines around. Well, how you know what what is the threshold for that? And a lot of the data is reasonably robust it's largely based on epidemiology data and then also some acute kind of animal animal studies as well so the, there is general kind of dietary guidelines around that i think the problem with just focusing on one single macronutrient and i'm not a fat advocate um, i don't particularly demonize it either um, is that one you do have that that level of individuality um, but also it's it's very much one piece in a much wider puzzle so there's things like socioeconomic consequences, levels of um, inequality within society, things like the built environment, the fact that, you know, things have just become much more um, automated now. Uh, we move a lot less. Uh, we burn, you know, uh, much fewer calories. Um, in terms of readily accessible foods, you know, it's very easy to eat high energy foods because they're very accessible now. Um, one of the other areas which we're particularly interested in is, is not just looking at nutrients, but actually how food is structured. So actually, you know, we, we published a paper just last week that looked at foods which were matched identically for nutritional content, but we just structured the fat differently. So actually, this was a high fat meal. Um, we used olive oil, you know, commonly regarded as a, as a, as a healthy oil, um, unless you, you cook at really high temperatures and then the fats denature, the, the proteins uh, denature within it, and that's not particularly good. But that was a really good example. This, the study is a really good example of how you can take a meal which is matched for nutrition content, but if you play around with the structure of the fat, it changes how, it's behave, how, how it actually behaves in the body. So rather than having this, as you would say, these kind of cardiovascular effects of, of having high, high fat feeds, 
Uh, and we haven't looked at this over the long term, but just very acutely, what you tend to have with a high fat meal is that you tend to have an acute inflammatory response. You tend to get acute release of thrombotic markers, so things related to uh, clotting, um, and basically um, some 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 alterations which would which would indicate that uh, it's not very good for your blood vessels. And, you know, given that diabetes complications are largely of the vasculature, then you know this is particularly important. If you simply play around with the structure of the fat, you can actually have the same amount of fat, but you don't get the same response. So you actually get a, a fairly comparable response to a meal which is low in fat. And this is really the main kind of caveat with dietary recommendations, is that nutritional science is very, very complex. Trying to package it up into a neat single message for the general public is impossible. But this is what public health constantly try and do. Uh, I mean, I don't really know what else they can do, to be fair, but it, it's very, very difficult. It's no longer just looking at macronutrients, but looking at how it is, pro whether it's processed. Um, if it is, then how it is processed, whether it's cooked. You know, so the kind of preparation of the meal is really, really important. Um, yeah, so there's many, many factors which, which are important, not just the amount of fat. But yeah, I, I do agree. Having a large amount of fat regularly is not necessarily very good. I was also going to come back to the point about the research in terms of uh, high fat and low fat diets is that low fat is actually determined as a normal diet. So it still has about 30% of fat, I think, or so, whereas um, there are even lower fat diets, which haven't really been studied, potentially because of their how ethical they are or non-ethical they are. Yeah. Um, but also most of this research is on weight loss and weight loss and insulin sensitivity are two completely different things. Why? Sure. So I think, I think there's a couple of points which you raise there. Um, you're right. When you look at the literature, a lot of lower fat studies, are they actually low fat? And it's the same with low carb studies. Are a lot of low carb studies actually low carb? Well, what is low carb? You know, who has actually defined that and what is the threshold for it? Um, so there's that first kind of point, which we need to try and get around and establish. Um, it's also what is the carbohydrate and what is the fat? Uh, and what populations are we doing this in? Um, you know, so if you feed someone a Mediterranean diet, which is often sold as being you know, the healthy diet, well, if you give that to somebody uh, you know, in Southeast Asia, they're probably not going to do particularly well on it. You know? And it's the same if you give a Southeast Asian diet to a Westerner, they might not necessarily do very well on it. So making it specific to the individual uh, cultures and individual populations is really, really important. Um, the point we raise around insulin resistance and weight is also really important. Generally, there's quite a strong association, and I use the word association, um, between weight gain and insulin resistance. There's also quite a lot of mechanistic data that would show that that is actually causative. So, for example, if you overfeed an animal, the animal will get fat and it will tend to develop insulin resistance. The problem that we have in humans is that although the general rule still holds true, there's a large amount of variability. So we have what is called a personal fat threshold. And there's been a lot of research recently being done in type 2 diabetes around reversing type 2 diabetes and people losing weight and reversing insulin resistance, which really demonstrates this was some very nice studies looking at fat content in metabolic active organs, such as the pancreas and the liver. And what that shows is that you can have somebody who on the face of it looks like their normal weight, but they can be insulin resistant. So asking someone to lose weight, if they're normal weight, 
isn't necessarily going to tackle into the resistance. Perhaps it's quite dangerous. It can be quite dangerous, especially if you're type one, because the most effective way to lose weight is through diet. And, you know, if you want to try and cut down your insulin dose, then if you're going to stop messing around with carbohydrates, then you're introducing ketones and things like that. Um, and actually, you also see some people in the population who tend to be very overweight, but they've got a normal level of insulin sensitivity. So there's a huge degree of variation. The general trend is in that direction. The larger you are, the more weight you're carrying, the more insulin resistant or less insulin sensitive that you are. But that's not the same for everybody. There's a lot of variability. But I guess, unfortunately, that is the best that science can do. And yeah, the general consensus is that there is a lot of variability between different people. And that's why people need to know this information and need to know the different ways they can tackle things. But they still yeah. need to advocate for themselves and do the trial and error themselves, really. Absolutely. And that's, I guess, is the general consensus of the, the whole area of nutrition, research and type 1 diabetes. Yeah, and there's also... Sorry, Andrew, I was just going to... So, so I was just going to make one final point on that. It, it was just, there's also this difficult balancing act that clinicians and also patients always have to do as well. So for example, if you look at some of the longitudinal research around intensification of insulin therapy, that's really what is kind of being blamed for the increase in insulin resistance. It's whereby people with type one, they were struggling in terms of the general population or clinicians were struggling to control, to help patients control their blood sugar levels. So they intensified insulin um, administration, the advent of new insulins, they were administering more insulin. Because insulin is an anabolic hormone, it helps you store fat. Also, the more insulin you administer, the more desensitized you become to it. So over a long period of time, you can actually develop insulin resistance. But there's, and of course, there's lots of other factors sitting in the background there. There's you know, different genetic factors, there's different lifestyle factors, there's the built environment, there's the exposure to different foods, how food is being processed and um, how changes to agriculture and all of those different factors, which we need to try and kind of um, enter into some kind of equation. So now we have people who are really trying to get on top of their diabetes. They're, they're you know, making small changes to their insulin dosing. They're making extra kind of correction doses here and there, trying to aggressively manage their glucose levels. And now what we have is people who have got good HbA1c's, good level of glucose control, but actually they're overweight, they have insulin resistance, and that increases their risk of diabetes complications. So we haven't necessarily seen the reduction in the complications that has been associated with having poor glucose levels. Um, so it's trying to find strategies that, yes, you can get on top of your glucose levels, but if you're if as a consequence, if you're also introducing things like insulin resistance, that's gonna that could actually unpick some of the really hard work that you've been doing over the last five to 10 years. So Matthew, are you firmly of the opinion as Dario and I are that, that insulin resistance, it really, or insulin sensitivity more, more specifically, is really the deciding factor on your overall health um, as, as a diabetic? I think, I think it's a really important factor. So I think there's lots of things which are really, really important. Um, I think if you're overweight and you have underlying an underlying predisposition to insulin resistance, if you ask me what is the number one that I, what is the number one thing which I should that, that I should tackle, I would say sort out insulin resistance, um, that kind of underlying insulin resistance. Um, 
if that's just kind of ticking away in the background, then you know there's there's other things which are really really important, and it also depends on which point you're starting from. You know, if your blood sugars are all over the place, then actually you need to focus on that immediately. You know, because if you don't, then you know you're going to find a noticeable difference in your in your eyesight within five years. So you know, really concentrate on managing your blood sugars. If if you feel like you do control your blood sugars reasonably well, but like everybody, they kind of yo-yo from time to time. Sometimes you don't necessarily know why they're going high or low, you know. Um, and if you know that you do struggle with weight and you feel like you, you're having large amounts of insulin doses, so you've potentially got um, an underlying level of insulin resistance, then that is definitely the thing which, which you should be trying to concentrate on. But then to kind of argue with your point there, um, you might have very hectic blood sugar levels, but maybe that is because you're insulin resistant. And so maybe that is something you could tackle alongside it. So again, of course, you do need to manage your variability. Absolutely. So really just to try and emphasize that point, again, a paper which we've literally, uh, it's, I mean, it's not actually published yet. Uh, it's just going through the kind of peer review process. Well, we've shown there's been a, a lot of debate within the scientific community around the utility of glucose variability in terms of its association with complications. Things like HbA1c, long-term glucose control, the association between that and diabetes complications is really well established. The association between glycemic variability and complications, eh, the kind of jury's out on it. Um, I think people with type 1 diabetes know how, frustra how frustrating it is. And actually, there's lots of smaller studies which show that, you know, um, certainly in animal models, if you have, you know, kind of yo-yoing glucose levels, that's not very good in terms of your cardiovascular and wider health. But when you look at the kind of big data sets, these big wide population studies, there isn't really the same level of association there. We've recently shown that glucose variability, although it is important, um, it becomes very, very important when you have underlying insulin resistance. So really, it's, it's insulin resistance, which is mediating the impact of glucose variability. Glucose variability is not very good in the background, but if you have underlying insulin resistance, it's very, very bad for you. Okay, that does make total sense. So um, on my side, we've covered kind of everything I wanted to. Andrew, anything else you would like to ask, Matthew? I, I would like to ask what the, the plans are in the, in the next six to, to, to 12 months and maybe a couple of years after that. Have you, have you got research in place for the next couple of years and have you got the funding for all of that? Good question. Um, so I suppose longer term plans is, is to really try and continue with some of the work which, which we've been engaged on um, and really sticking on the path of insulin resistance and coming up with strategies to help people with type 1 manage insulin resistance, avoid it and also treat it. And we're looking at various strategies around that exercise interventions, and dietary interventions and really try and tease out what is effective and also who responds to these interventions. So looking at precision medicine and saying, well, you know, can we move away from this kind of blanket brush approach and say, well, actually, if you have these clinical characteristics, can we almost come up with a bit of a traffic light system of, of risk, um, you know, whereby I'm saying, well, you know, if, you, if you're demonstrating these clinical characteristics, then maybe this intervention might work a little bit better for you, you know, so a more of a kind of tailored approach. And that's the kind of long-term, the long-term ambition there. In the short term of the next six to 12 months, um, we've recently received funding from Diabetes UK um, to undertake a, a study looking at the impact of 
low intensity physical activity. So really answering that kind of bed bug question that I get asked a lot is, you know, if I want to go out and walk the dog, if I want to do the washing, uh, if I want to wash the car, but I always go low, what can I do? Well, actually, we're, we're running a study to try and understand what, what a kind of typical glucose response is to low intensity exercise. And then on the back of that, we will try and devise some recommendations for people. So that's really the first, the first part in the puzzle. Um, and that should hopefully come online over the next kind of 12 to 18 months or so. That's really awesome because that is something I actually struggle with. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of people do. Um, so it's coming to the end of the podcast and to the end of the more than an hour now. Um, but thank you, Matthew, for coming on and thank you for joining us. It was a great conversation and we wish you all the best in your research. Thank you. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this interview just as much as we did and that you found it very useful. If you would like to know more about Matthew, we will put the links to his research in the description of this podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find Andrew at T1D underscore One Life and Daria at T1 Level underscore Daria and also at www.t1leveldaria.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in your podcast app and leave us a review. It really helps with the podcast getting out there and reaching more people. We hope you join us next week for the next episode.